This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, what the co-creator of what became Medicare came to feel was wrong with it and his radical solution, which neither political party would feel brave enough to implement. One of the longest running studies in the world, which has followed the well-being of children, has turned 30 and it's Australian. Some of the amazing things it's achieved and the difference it's made. Plus, heartburn. About one in three Australians suffer from indigestion of some kind. And heartburn, plus or minus acid or food coming up into your throat, is one of the commonest symptoms. Your local pharmacy shelves are full of remedies for indigestion and heartburn, including acid-lowering medications called proton pump inhibitors. That's in the belief that the cause is a condition called gastroesophageal reflux disease. There is another treatment, however, for reflux, and that's surgery. But the evidence hasn't been clear that surgery is better than medications, which is why a US group of researchers decided to do a randomized trial comparing intensive medications with surgery. But there was a shock in store for them. The vast majority of participants didn't have acid reflux at all, findings which have huge implications for people who have heartburn. The researchers published their results in the New England, of Journal, New England Journal of Medicine last week. Dr. Stuart Speckler, who's Chief of Gastroenterology at Baylor University Medical Center in Texas, was the lead author. The reason that you get both the heartburn and the regurgitation with reflux disease is that there's a leaky valve mechanism at the end of the esophagus. So in many ways, it's a plumbing problem. That valve that's supposed to function as a one-way valve to let food enter your stomach when you swallow, it malfunctions in reflux disease so that material from the stomach can reflux back into the esophagus. The acid in there can give you a burning sensation of heartburn. And then if the material comes all the way back up to your mouth, that's regurgitation. And how real is the risk of esophageal cancer from reflux disease? Reflux disease is definitely a risk factor for esophageal cancer. But it's a relatively small risk factor. So treatment is designed to relieve symptoms, not necessarily as a cancer prevention. Primarily, it's for symptom relief. Now, if you have a complication of GERD called Barrett's esophagus, that is a stronger risk factor for cancer. That's where the stomach kind of invades the lower end of the esophagus. Yes, there's a change in the lining at the end of the esophagus, and that is a risk factor for cancer. Although even if you have Barrett's esophagus, the risk is not enormous. And we advise patients with Barrett's esophagus to have regular endoscopic surveillance. Now, this trial was originally intended to see which is best, drugs to reduce the acid in the stomach to very low levels and various other drugs to help symptoms or surgery to tighten up that valve. But you got a surprise when you did the study. And this is one of the main reasons actually for interviewing you. Right. So this study was not looking at just run-of-the-mill reflux disease. And most people, the symptoms of heartburn especially, respond very well to treatment with proton pump inhibitors. And they stop the stomach from making acid. So even though reflux continues, without the acid, generally the burning sensation goes away. These are brand names like Losec and Nixium. Yes, but in up to 30 to 40% of people who take those drugs, they'll say, gee, my symptoms have not gone away and I'm not 100% satisfied with the relief I'm getting. And so we were looking at that group with the so-called medically refractory heartburn. And the surprise there was that many, many of these patients, most, the large majority, did not have GERD as the cause of their heartburn. How did you find that out? 
We did a very extensive workup on those patients to look for other causes of heartburn. Heartburn is by no means specific for reflux disease. You can have other diseases that also give you that exact same sensation. Problems with the muscles in the esophagus, for example. There's a food allergy problem that involves the esophagus that can also give you heartburn. And many patients who have this PPI-resistant heartburn have what we call functional heartburn. That is, it's not caused by GERD, and in fact, it's not caused by anything that we can identify, but patients have heartburn. And the reason that's very important to identify those patients is because you definitely do not want to do an operation to correct reflux in somebody who doesn't have reflux. That's not going to have a good ending. So when you actually did this rigorous workup of the original patients that you recruited, what proportion ended up having true gastroesophageal reflux disease? Well, we started with 366 patients, and we ended up with 78 who were qualified to enter the trial of medical and surgical therapy. And we think that's a very important part of the study. Physicians and patients should not assume that just because they have heartburn that means they have reflux disease, and especially when the heartburn doesn't go away with the proton pump inhibitors. Now, you also found when you actually put people on a regular twice-daily dose of a proton pump inhibitor, I think it was omeprazole, that in fact a lot of them were helped by it, which suggests that the reason they didn't really have proton pump inhibitor-resistant GERD, they just weren't taking the tablets. Yes, and it's probably not just because they weren't taking the tablets, but they weren't taking them correctly. The proton pump inhibitors, because of the way they work, it's very important that they're dosed around mealtimes. The reason is that the proton pump inhibitors, they inhibit the actual acid-making cells in the stomach. But in order to inhibit them, the cells have to be active. They have to be actively making acid when the drug is in the bloodstream. They've got to be open for business, so to speak. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. They have to be open for business. When you're fasting, for example, only 5% of those cells are open for business. But when you have a meal, something like 60 to 70% are active. So should you take it before or after a meal? Before. And the reason is you want to get the drug in the bloodstream and available to those cells at the time they start making acid. So yes, you're right. A little bit more than 10% of the patients who originally entered the study, because they've been taking the proton pump inhibitors for years and not getting a good effect, As soon as we explained how to take the medication correctly, those patients did get relief. So I think that's just a very simple thing that doctors and patients can do. They just have to make sure that they're taking the drugs correctly. The bottom line is quite simple for this study. You had 78 patients, wasn't very many in the end, that you were able to randomize to active treatment and what's called frontoplication, which is tightening up the valve. And you showed that the operation was better. Yes, and that was a little bit of a surprise, too, because many of the patients who were qualified for the study, they didn't have acid reflux, but they had reflux that was causing symptoms. And we can tell that with a test called impedance pH monitoring, where we position electrodes in the esophagus that sense reflux. So if it's not acid, what is it? Because that's what the stomach produces. That's correct, but... It also makes a lot of other material, and just liquid, and also just anything you eat is available to reflux back if you have a plumbing problem there. And again, the proton pump inhibitors stop the acid, but they don't fix the plumbing problem. So in some people, we found that reflux of non-acid material was giving them the sensation of heartburn. 
And those patients did very, very well with the operation, which was a bit of a surprise because we had tended to classify those patients with non-acid reflux causing heartburn, we, we tended to think of them as having a functional problem, meaning something that wasn't necessarily an organic problem with the stomach or esophagus. But the fact that they responded well to surgery means that, yes, they did in fact have a, a plumbing problem that could be corrected with an operation. So let's say you've got heartburn. It's not responded to proton pump inhibitors and you're taking them just before a meal, so you're doing it properly and you're doing it twice a day. What are the investigations that a general practitioner, a family practitioner, should be doing to test whether or not this is true gastroesophageal reflux disease? Generally, we'll have to see a specialist for this, a gastroenterologist, but the tests are not exotic. One thing would be an endoscopy where we actually look into the esophagus with a flexible tube and we can look for other diseases and we can take biopsies of the esophagus to look for those diseases as well. If that doesn't show us any abnormalities, we can do an esophageal motility study where, again, you swallow a tube that sits in the esophagus. The tube has pressure sensors and it tells us how the muscles are working in the esophagus because there are diseases that involve the esophageal muscles that can also give you the sensation of heartburn. If those two tests are normal, then we would proceed to this new test, the impedance pH monitoring test. And that tells us whether there's reflux of material, whether it's acid or non-acid reflux. And we ask the patients to wear a little sensor on their belt that tells us whenever there is a, an episode of reflux. And the patient, whenever they feel heartburn, they can push the button and we can then analyze the tracing. And if we see that they're getting heartburn at the same time there's a reflux episode, we would say that's reflux-related heartburn. Those are the patients who did very well with surgery in this study. And is there treatment for the motility disorders? It's a difficult thing to treat because it can happen anywhere in the bowel. There's a whole variety of motility disorders. Some of them respond very well to treatment. Others we don't have such wonderful treatments for. For example, there's a disorder called achalasia that is a problem. Swallowing it, problem. It's a, yeah, it's a muscle problem. And it's almost exactly the opposite of reflux disease in that the muscle at the end of the esophagus is too tight. And that's a group that you especially want to be careful not to send somebody with achalasia for a fundoplication because it makes it worse, absolutely. And very finally, the functional disorders where you can't find any abnormality, which is a bit like mm -hmm. chronic pain syndromes and other problems mm -hmm. where there's something very real going on. It's a real sensation, but you can't find the pathology. Are the treatments for that like chronic pain more psychological? There are treatments for that. The treatments are not terribly good, but yes, they can respond to some of the same kinds of treatments, especially cognitive behavior therapies if they're available. But definitely you do not want to do an operation to correct reflux in those patients because that can only make it worse, not better. Stuart Speckler, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Stuart Speckler is Chief of Gastroenterology and Co-Director of the Centre for Esophageal Diseases at Baylor University Medical Centre in Dallas. You're listening to RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. Tomorrow in Melbourne, there's a memorial service for a remarkable Australian who died at the beginning of October. Dick Scotton was co-architect of Australia's Universal Public Health Insurance Scheme, which was put in place by the Whitlam government in the mid-70s. In those days, it was called Medibank, and it sparked open warfare with the Australian Medical Association. When the Hawke government was elected, Medibank was relaunched as Medicare, again followed by massive battles with the AMA. 
These days, Medicare is almost untouchable as one of the most popular public policy initiatives in Australian history. Yet Dick Scotton felt it needed significant change. His co-architect was John Deeble, by the way, who died almost a year to the day before Scotton. Dick Scotton was a political economist and for a lot of his career was based at Monash University, which is where there is now a Centre for Health Economics, whose first director was Professor Jeff Richardson. I spoke to Jeff earlier. You're welcome. How well did you know Dick Scotton? I've known him since 1970, distantly at first, and then when I came to Melbourne, largely at his instigation, he persuaded me to come. I was uh, worked very closely with him, travelled a couple of times with him, collaborated with him on some works, so I knew him pretty well. So where did the idea, you know, he worked with John Deeble, who died not so long ago himself, where did the idea for a Medibank, Medicare-type system come from? It was John and Dick together. They made it pretty clear that they interacted so closely it was hard to know where the ideas bubbled up from. But in the mid-1960s, they did a series of studies which documented just how lamentable our health system was then in terms of the coverage of people, the coverage of the population, uh, the, the, the adequacy of the insurance, and it became pretty obvious that we needed reform. And how bad and, was it in those days before Medibank came in in the Whitlam years? Well, there was a significant number, 15 to 20% of the population didn't have insurance at all. There wasn't a backup of free hospital services. Those people who did have insurance, only a pretty inadequate percentage of their bills were covered. And the private health insurance companies were very badly regulated. Dick took great pleasure in telling me all of the villainies that they got up to, and they were up to a lot of villainies, as they were very lightly regulated. So it was not good. We really did need reform. I mean, this is recent, within living memory, it was as bad as the United States. Oh, yes. And the battle to actually get Medibank created was rather similar to Obamacare. It was pretty vicious. The opposition to it was ideological. It was self-interested. Uh, it was very, very similar to the battle for Obamacare. And what were Dick's and John's, but you know, he was you know, a 50% partner in this, what were the design principles that underlay Medibank and then there were reforms under Malcolm Fraser and then when the Hawke government came in, they, they reintroduced it as Medicare. What were the design principles? They were comparatively modest. First of all, that um, everybody would have access to free public hospital care, which was not the case in the past. Secondly, it extended the coverage of insurance to the entire population. So that was 15 to 20% of the population was now covered that wasn't. They introduced bulk billing as a way of ensuring that the least well-off wouldn't have any out-of-pocket expenses, at least going to a general practitioner. That was the original Medibank. When you say the reforms of Malcolm Fraser, in fact, it was essentially a dismantling of the Medibank and subsequently was reintroduced as Medicare. Now, I think both John Deeble and Dick Scotton felt that serious mistakes were made and there, there were some regrets there in the way it worked out. Well, subsequently, Dick described it as the scheme having used its use-by date. I don't think they had any regrets about the reforms that they did bring in. 
But as I said, the reforms were comparatively modest, an extension of the insurance cover. So it's astonishing, I suppose, like Obamacare, that it met with such fierce opposition. But Dick did conclude that the system, and it wasn't many bank per se, but the system that we had inherited and continued was lacking in dynamism, was badly coordinated. It, it remains that way. And so he argued that Medicare had used use by date. And so we needed a fairly significant overhaul of the system. And he felt that in the 1990s? Yes, that's right, yes. So what was he proposing should go in its place? It was called managed competition. And it was essentially to try and capture the dynamism of the private sector but given all of the difficulties... So he wasn't ideologically opposed to the private sector, which was how it was typified in 83 by the AMA when they went to town on him. Oh, no, absolutely not. The AMA had a very ignoble role historically at that time. Essentially, he was saying that what we needed was a bit more competition because in a monopolistic situation that we have at the moment new ideas would not percolate through. We had failed to actually coordinate the different parts of the health system. Uh, so especially with chronic care, people could be ricocheted around the system. Nobody was coordinating it. The idea of managed competition was that everybody would be assigned to a single fund holder. That single fund holder would look after everything, hospital and medical, so it wouldn't be split between the Commonwealth and the state. And there'd be multiple... Uh, Fund holders. And then there would be multiple fund holders. Who would be a compete default. with each other. Yes. There would be a public default system. So everybody who did nothing would go to the government and the government would compete. And the competition between them would hopefully improve the system. Quite similar to the original concept for Obamacare in many ways. Yes, the original conception of it, yes. And, and essentially that system would be like Holland, would like the Netherlands, which is almost entirely a private system, but heavily regulated to provide yes. even care. Yes. Dick was in close cooperation with people in the Netherlands and also in Israel, where they've done something similar. There are also systems in the United States which are very similar to this. Massachusetts, for example. Yeah. yeah. So do, does it, I mean, for any political party to say they're going to do this would be... You know, they'd probably consider it political suicide. But does it work? Well, that was the difficulty. I think that Dick had got a very clear view of where it could be eventually. The phasing in of it through time would be very, very difficult. You'd have to introduce it in stages. He and I actually talked about that, worked on that for a while. Given the opposition to Medibank in its introduction, I suspect the introduction of this rather more radical scheme would be even more difficult. Dick was acutely aware of that. He was extraordinary in the depth of his knowledge of the political economy of reform. He hadn't actually got a blueprint for the introduction of his managed competition, though. What sort of person was he? He was a lovely man. He was enthusiastic. He was intellectual. He was socially concerned. I have to say he was a modest person. He didn't push himself forward. He tried to help other people. He tried to help me. I'm very grateful to that. He had an eye for a good buy. He had a taste for wine, which he could get a very good buy for. He had an eye for a good health scheme, which he worked on. He was, he was basically a good man. 
and it was a real pleasure to actually work with him. His enthusiasm was infectious. His knowledge was encyclopedic. A man of his time. Yes, absolutely. There were very few of him at the time. There were very few of him now. Jeff, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Noah. Jeff Richardson is Emeritus Professor and Foundation Director of the Centre for Health Economics at Monash Business School. 30 years ago in Western Australia, 3,000 women who were about 18 weeks pregnant agreed to be recruited into a study which would follow them and their babies as the babies grew up with regular questionnaires, tests and examinations. These kids are now in their late 20s and they already have 100 offspring themselves, known as Gen 3. The mothers are Gen 1, the kids Gen 2 and their kids Gen 3. At the time, it was one of the largest so-called longitudinal studies of children in the world and one of the few to start during pregnancy. It was called the RAIN study, named after the foundation which originally funded it. And over the years, it's generated invaluable knowledge. Joining me is the current scientific director of the RAIN study, Leon Straker, and Professor Melissa Wake of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Welcome to you both. Good afternoon, Norman. Hi, Norman. Melissa, you're giving the keynote at the 30th anniversary meeting of the RAIN, and your title is intriguing, Life is an Off-Label Condition, trying to explain why we need longitudinal studies. Tell us more. Norman, I think that we often tend to think that the only path to truth is through randomised trials. And randomised trials are absolutely critical for guiding better care. But the reality is that life isn't a randomised trial. And we it get mugged so by many- reality. Well, that's right. And we go through an entire life. And in a day, you know, in a sense, every day of our life, things are happening to us, whether in the healthcare system or in our families or at school or or our workplace or whatever. And we can't test all of those things experimentally. So there is just an enormous place for longitudinal studies. I I see longitudinal studies as, as the gift that just keeps on giving. And when you have a study like the RAIN that has run for 30 years, it becomes kind of a national treasure or an international treasure and we have to look after them. And they will just keep on giving more and more back um, as, as they go forward. Do we look after them in Australia? I don't think we look after them enough. We, we don't provide enough infrastructure for them. We perhaps don't provide enough access to them. So I think a lot of their secrets um, remain unlocked. Meaning that we lock them away from other researchers. We, we guard it too yeah, jealously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we guard them too jealously. We, 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 you know, quite rightly, we're concerned about things like privacy, etc., which are incredibly important. But we need to weigh that up against the, the, the benefits. And we also need to invest in, in the, um, as I said, the infrastructure, the, the, um, the data infrastructure that actually enables the data to, to come out and be used fast and effectively. And often that's the most difficult thing, actually, about a longitudinal study oh, is oh. enabling those data to be used. We've had you already on the health report talking about one of your longitudinal studies and we'll come back to what's going on in Victoria later but let's go to Leon Straker now. Leon, what, what are the more important findings that have come out so far from the RAIN study? Um, well, we've had 500 papers published that so it's a, we could spend the yeah. afternoon talking about okay. lots of them. We've got time for three or four I think. Yeah, so a couple of the areas that I work in that I can sort of talk more comfortably about if you like um, is um, sedentary time in children um, and so the RAIN study using this longitudinal data has been able to get trajectories of television viewing from the five years of age through to 17 years of age um, and then using DEXA look at bone mineral density in when they're young adults 
And we've been able to show that the um, children who are in the low TV trajectory all the way through childhood and adolescence have um, higher bone density as young adults. Um, and that's really important for long-term health for these people because we know that the best predictor of um, fractures later in life is the peak bone, bone mineral density that you had as a um, young adult. And presumably because you, because there are other findings as well, like a healthy diet and better school achievement, better sleep patterns and better mental health, I assume that because you know so much about people, you can control for things like parental education, income of the parents and so on. Yeah, one of the real strengths of the RAIN study is that it isn't focused on a particular um, health outcome um, and we've collected data across the whole spectrum of health issues and um, environmental issues and behavioural sort of risk factors um, plus genetics and we can put all of that um, 30 years of history for each individual into our statistical models to look at the relationships to account for things like um, dieting um, input for calcium and bone mineral density, for example. And you've made discoveries about back pain in adolescence and into adulthood. Yeah, so one of the fascinating things about back pain is that when we started, when these um, Generation 2, the original fetuses were teenagers, most people um, believed that um, spinal pain wasn't important for adolescents. Um, and we asked the, these adolescents about whether they'd had to miss school because of back or neck pain, whether they'd taken any medication or sought health professional advice, or whether they'd had to modify their activities of daily living or their exercise patterns. Um, and we found that you know, between a quarter and a third of the adolescents with spinal pain had actually had to do these things. Um, and an interesting point for science is that we actually struggled to get that paper published because it was against conventional wisdom that um, spinal that pain in adolescence isn't, yeah. isn't a problem for, for children. And just briefly, you, because you started in pregnancy, you were able to make discoveries about pregnancy and the implications for the children, things like ultrasound, smoking, and so on. Yeah, so the original funding for the project was set up as a randomised controlled trial to look at whether serial ultrasounds um, through pregnancy could help with birth outcomes. Um, but at the time, in the sort of late, late 80s and early 90s, it wasn't really known whether ultrasound was um, safe for fetuses. Um, and so the RAIN study actually first publication was a, a Lancet paper which demonstrated that there was no detrimental harm for multiple uh, ultrasounds during pregnancy if it was clinically advised. And that set the standard worldwide and gives peace of mind to any woman who needs to have an ultrasound when she's pregnant. And it was also one of the first studies to show the benefits of breastfeeding. And we've got a lot of research sort of showing the benefits of breastfeeding through early childhood and through um, other parts of life with um, scholastic outcome as well. So what's, in, in a sense, Melissa, Victoria's built on this because you've, you've had several longitudinal studies. There's a Victorian temperament study which has looked at difficult babies versus you know, easy babies and followed them through to uh, adolescence to find out the difficult babies, the difficult adolescent. Surprise, surprise. But you've, 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 you've got your own set of longitudinal studies going. Yes, I, I work at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute where we have about 60 cohorts, in, in fact, and most of those, um, like the ATP and like the RAIN study, started out with a particular single question that they were particularly interested in. Um, right now we're planning... And, and then a, you hung on, with the, hung on to the women or the kids... 
Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, participants um, are, are very willing in that regard. They're very willing to stay the distance and, and, and go the journey so that you can really look into those very long life course trajectories of growth and then perhaps inevitable decline. But we're now planning a much, much larger study called GenV, and I guess um, that's going to start in a couple of years. And I guess we've moved towards the idea of if you're going to do a trial, do a really definitive trial. And we've also moved with our thinking for cohorts. You know, what would a definitive cohort look like? And that's what, and there won't ever be such a thing, but that, that's kind of what's guiding our thoughts about this this new initiative, Gen V. How do we really help solve complex problems at scale? And doing the genes as well. Look, thank you very much to you both. Well done, Leon. And uh, it's set the scene for a lot of other work. Um, it's been great of you both to join us. Melissa Wake is Professor and and group leader of population health at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne. And Leon Straker is Professor of Physiotherapy at Curtin University and Scientific Director of the RAIN Study. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan, and I hope you'll join me next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.